Our reading this morning is from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And that can be found in the Pew Bible on page 934. Micah chapter 6, the Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Thank you, Tom. It is a bit warm in here, so if you'd like to take your jackets off, open the windows, feel free. I'm sure uh, Jeff would approve of that. (laughs) Um, Well, we're seven months into the year by now, and hopefully you will uh, know what our verse for the year is. Uh, it's been there on the, the banner, but uh, easy to overlook these things on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, we've even chosen a verse this year with two songs to help you remember it, so there's uh, no excuse. But it's good to revisit it halfway through the year to reapply it to our current situation. And as I read these uh, verses from Micah 6 again um, this week, what was um, fresh in my mind as I came across these words, stand up, plead your case before the mountains. I think it was probably the unpleasant experience we had a couple of weeks ago of having to stand up and plead our case, not before the mountains, but before the parish council. Um, the case I'm talking about is the application we've submitted as a church for the extension to our facilities here. And as Jeff, Alistair, Martin and myself all stood up in turn to speak, We were conscious that we were being listened to, not just by the parish council, uh, not just by members of the public who were there, but also the most important person who was listening to us was, of course, God. And what he was listening out for was very different from what others were listening to. He wasn't so interested in how slick or persuasive the presentation was. It's probably a good job. He was more interested in our words and our behaviour as we presented. 
whether we were able in the process to act justly, to show mercy and to walk humbly before God. And I hope and then thanks to those who are praying at the same time that we were able to do that. I won't pretend that it was, um, wasn't an unpleasant experience uh, to have wrongful accusations thrown at you, to, to feel that you weren't receiving a fair hearing. But it's far more bearable to face the unjust treatment at the hands of people than the just anger of God. Because in this passage from Micah, the people of Israel are facing the awful prospect of the Lord having a case against them. Of God himself, as it says here, bringing charges. To get to this stage means there must have been a serious breakdown in their relationship. And this is a final wake-up call for them. They can't assume that that relationship will remain intact if they carry on the way they have been, disrespecting God. If you saw the newspapers um, on Thursday in the Times, it read, Europe warns Obama, this relationship is not working. And the article talked about a, a, a fractious few months culminating in the G20 summit with a fundamental clash of ideas about how we can end the economic crisis. And this passage from Micah is basically saying the same. The covenant relationship that God established with the people of Israel back in in Exodus isn't working. That covenant relationship in which God promised to be their God, to dwell among them, to, to bless them. And the Israelites, on the other hand, who had agreed to be a holy people, to to love, fear, and serve God. That relationship has broken down. What has gone wrong with it? Well, if you turn back to, uh, to chapter, chapter 3, you will see some of the various charges that God levels against his people. Have a look at verse 9. What we see here is that they are very much guilty of injustice. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. And as he carries on, he's accusing them effectively of arrogance. Yet, even with all this, they still lean upon the Lord and say, there's not the Lord among us, no disaster will come upon us. The truth is, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And that arrogance, that idolatry is taken up later in chapter 5, which we'll come back to. But coming back to, to chapter 6, before God gets Israel to plead her case, he asks them two rhetorical questions in many ways that show just how much love and concern he has for them. Look there in verse 3 of chapter 6. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? What have I done to you that I could deserve such treatment at your hands? What have I done that is so bad that you should turn your back on me and treat me in the way that you have? Answer me. And hopefully as we look at this passage, we won't be guilty of the same arrogance because it would be very easy to sort of step back and say, oh yeah, terrible, look what they were up to. God, he wouldn't catch me doing that. 
But of course, we are guilty in many different ways. There's no answer from the Israelites here, and so God proceeds to give them four examples from many he could have chosen of the way in which he has shown them his grace, his loving kindness towards them. Examples God gives of his grace are the way he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Look down there in verse 4. The way he gave them great leaders like Moses, Aaron, Miriam. The way he delivered them from the curse that Balak wanted to inflict on them. The way he enabled them to cross the Jordan to enter into the promised land. All acts of God's grace. Remember, God says at the end of that, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. We're looking at memory with Adam this morning already, haven't we? It's a funny thing, memory. We each have different capacities for memory. Some have better short-term memory than long-term. Some can remember faces and not names. Others can remember names but not faces. I'm sure on your way out at the door you may experience me saying to you, have we met um, before? You look familiar, but I'm afraid I can't quite remember your name. I've probably been talking to my wife, but... um, Or you may say to me, well, actually, I've been coming here for a couple of years now, but no... We have different memories. This week we've been treated in the Times to the, the memoirs of Peter Mandelson, if you get the Times. And you do wonder if his recollection of the events at number 10 would be the same as Tony Blair's recollection or Brown's recollection. Memory, as Adam was saying this morning, is important. And the most important thing we can remember is God's grace. The reason we learn, the reason we study the Bible is to learn about God's grace. The reason we keep reading it is to remind ourselves because we forget. Without remembering God's grace, we have no motivation to lead a godly life. And we might as well forget about these commands that God gives us. Any religious leader can stand up here and tell you to be just, to be merciful, to be humble. But without God's grace, it simply becomes a teaching about how to be good, which is, which is fine, But the problem is we can never be good enough to meet God's perfect standards. The most amazing act of God's grace was to send his son to die for us. Through that death, we can be forgiven, we can be accepted by God, even though we ourselves are not good enough. And that is why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, that's why we celebrate it regularly. It is an outward visible symbol of God's invisible grace. And we need to remember that. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, words which we often use when we come around the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is the basis of our faith. But of course we shouldn't minimise or gloss over the daily acts of God's grace in our lives that we experience. God's mentioned a few examples here to the, the Israelites. There are many more we will each have experienced in our own lives if we are believers. And it's as we share these experiences of God's grace that we will grow 
in our confidence in what he's able to do in our lives. It's great to be able to do that on Thursday evenings when we, we meet for prayer here in the, in the church, to be encouraged by hearing about the way God has answered prayers of people, how he's working in different people's lives, how he's working through the ministry of this church. But also fill your minds with examples of God's grace from the Bible. Memorise verses from the Bible, not just the verse for the year. Read and memorise other parts of the Bible. The more we are full of the knowledge of God's grace, the better we will be able to withstand the attacks when they come. Whether they come in the form of physical suffering or emotional or spiritual suffering. Because we personally know how grateful we are to God for what he's done for us. If you are one of those campers out there, I still feel we're quite novices at it, but it's like pegging an extra guy rope down so that when the wind comes along, the tent won't blow away. The guy ropes become loose, they come undone. Unless we constantly check them and tighten them, unless we keep remembering what God has done, we'll be vulnerable. Well, the implication of God's question to the people of Israel is that if they had remembered his righteous acts, they wouldn't be in the situation where they are now, where they disobeyed him and neglected him. And our motivation for right behaviour is to remember God's grace. As we move on to verse 6, Micah seems to anticipate here what the response of the Israelites will be to this. And he asks that question, doesn't he? question that may be on the minds of the people of Israel, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. And what we see here in these next couple of verses is a, it's almost a typical human response, isn't it, when we're faced with criticism. It's to be defensive um, and to act all sort of offended. You know, is our worship not sufficient? You know, would God be pleased with more sacrifices? How about thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Will that be enough? What about my firstborn? Would that be sufficient, it says, to make atonement for the sin of my soul? What more does he want from me, it's almost. They don't seem to realise that what was the point of these animal sacrifices? It wasn't the sacrifice itself that made them right with God. In the same way, it's not the act of baptism that cleanses us from our sins. But the sacrifices were meant to be, like the Lord's Supper, an outward sign of an inner attitude of heart, a heart that's broken, that's contrite, a heart that was repentant, realising that it's gone astray. And so as Michael answers this question with what shall I come before the Lord, he focuses on the attitude of their hearts. He focuses on making clear to them, this is not a new standard of behaviour, this is not a new set of requirements that you need to follow. What he's doing is repeating what God has made clear to them already. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? In case you've forgotten, here it is again. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Look at your heart, he's saying. Look at your attitude toward God and examine yourself. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves, it says in 1 Corinthians, to see if our hearts are right with him to see if we're taking the supper effectively because we believe that Jesus has died for us and we trust in that death for our forgiveness? Or do we think there's some other way in which we've earned the right to do that? Because if there is, then we've got it wrong. But let's um, have a closer look at these, these three commandments then. The first two are to do with 
their relationship with other people, to act justly, to, to show justice. God has made us, hasn't he, with a natural sense of justice. We, we feel it quite acutely when we ourselves are um, the victims of injustice or when we see others who are treated unfairly, treated unjustly. It makes us angry. And part of it, what it means to have been made in the image of God, as we looked at in the sermon series recently on Genesis, is to be made with an inner value or worth. And to act justly is to, to respect that value in other people, that they've been made in the image of God. So how do we act unjustly? Well, when we do something for our own benefit at the expense of somebody else. The accusation levelled against the leaders of Israel here was serious. Look again at chapter 3, those verses I read out. Verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice, who distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money. They were abusing their position of influence. They were extorting money out of the people for whom they should have been responsible. People they should have been leading, people they should have been shepherding. And of course it's easy to see how other people have acted unjustly, but it's not always easy to see where we have acted in that way, is it? Reading the extracts from... uh, Peter Mandelson's book in the Times, he clearly felt he had been treated unjustly, Um, particularly the two times when he was forced to resign. And maybe he wanted to put across his side of things. Maybe he wanted to make a bit of money as well. But you do wonder, don't you, whether when bringing out his book, he truly appreciated just how much harm he would do to those he called his friends, to the party to which he's meant to have been a loyal member. Headlines yesterday were destructive and damaging and included many quotes from those who felt betrayed by him. But what about ourselves? As I say, it's easy to point the finger at somebody else, but we don't always see our own faults, how we treat people disrespectfully, how we fail to see things from the perspective of others. In the context of the church, it is essential to show respect to others, to seek the good of others, to treat them justly. Peter and Leonie are going to be received into membership this morning. It's great to to be receiving them in. And part of membership is acknowledging that obligation that we have to, to each other. That I don't just come to church for my own benefit, for what I can get out of it on my terms. I become part of a church family in which I'm prepared to make myself accountable to others, to give myself to others, to subordinate myself to their needs. When we are treated in the way that we feel is unjust, the temptation is to treat that person who's treating us unjustly with the same sense of injustice, isn't it? It's that natural sense of getting our own back, which brings us on to the next command, to love mercy. That word mercy is a word that describes God's steadfast love, his loyalty towards his people. What it implies is showing love even when it is not deserved. It implies a great generosity of love that goes beyond what is expected of us. Showing love when we really find it difficult to do so. The leaders retreat recently. We looked at the subject of uh, 
grace in the community. And uh, one of the passages we read together was Romans 12. And in Romans 12 it says, Bless those who persecute you. It says, Overcome evil with good. And there doesn't appear to be any limit in that passage to the blessing that we should show those who are unjust towards us. You know, we may not experience serious persecution like our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. We think this past week of uh, Dagestan, where a pastor was shot dead after leaving church. But as Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And the passage in Romans recognises that it may not be possible to live at peace with everybody, and that may depend on how people respond to the love that we show towards them, but that is no excuse for not continuing to show mercy and love. Our natural reaction, as I say, is when we are wrong, to seek revenge, rather than, as we're called to do, to love even more. And it's an outrageous expectation in many ways, isn't it? And the only way we can possibly be motivated to do that is by remembering God's mercy towards us. Have a look over the page of chapter 7, verse 18. Look what it says here. Great words which end this, this book. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Unlike us, who find it difficult to forgive, who may show mercy begrudgingly, reluctantly, God delights in showing mercy and having compassion in dealing with our sins. And the way in which he has dealt with them is by sacrificing his son for us. And when we think of just how much a sacrifice that was, only then do we have any chance of showing the same sort of mercy towards other people. Well, if acting justly and loving mercy are to do with our relationships with others, the third command is to do with our relationship with God. But of course, it's out of this one that the other two flow. We can't really separate them off quite so rigidly. They all belong to together. Walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, it's not to put our trust in ourselves. It's not to put our trust in what we have acquired through what we think is our strength, our gifts, our abilities. It's not to think that we can call on God just when we really need him. That is not walking humbly with God. That is walking arrogantly with God. Look back to chapter 5, verse 9. And here we see God saying, he will destroy all the things that Israel has put her trust in. And we read of horses and chariots. Let's not quickly think this doesn't apply to us. Don't see many people trotting down the high streets with a horse and cart. Because it's not difficult to see what these things stand for, what the modern-day equivalent would be. Horses and chariots, what it's referring to is your expensive cars or just your, your wealth in general. Don't put your trust in your financial security. For cities and strongholds, it's the same thing. How much do we rely 
on our financial security for the future rather than on God's provision and protection. It's been good for us as a church to increase the budget each year as we move forward, to start the year actually not knowing where that money will come from to meet the needs for that year. Because all that means is that we are growing the work of the church, we are trusting in God to provide, rather than simply waiting for the money to come in and then deciding what we can do with the money we've got. It's not trust in our own financial security. But from a reliance on wealth, the Lord also turns to their worship of idols and, and other gods, including evil spirits. Look at verse 12. I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. So criticism of the Israelites who have indulged in the religions of other countries as well as those countries themselves. And we may not be guilty of dishonouring God in quite so blatant a way, but of course there is a more subtle way of dishonouring God, and that is to rely on our human wisdom at the expense of relying on God and seeking his will. As we think about the the planning application, I'm not worried about the outcome of that application. That is because we have not taken anything for granted. We've done what we can, humanly speaking. And along the way, we have humbled ourselves before the Lord and asked that his will would be done. Every other Thursday here in the church, there's a group praying about the building project. And that will continue in September. As we start the Cornerstone Consultancy Group this week, the elders will join the group at the start of that meeting to seek the Lord's will, to humbly commit the work of that group to the Lord in prayer. Every ministry that goes on in this church starts with the team coming together in prayer because we we don't rely on the gifts of the leaders for the success of these ministries. We rely on the Lord. Prayer is, of course, one of the foremost ways in which we walk humbly with our God. That goes for the church life, that goes for our individual lives as well. We have many decisions to make in our lives. Do we take them to the Lord in prayer? Or do we just press on and then get to the point where actually we're not quite sure where we're going here and maybe now we should ask the Lord for his help? Are you walking with God? Or are you going ahead of him? and calling on him when you get a little bit stuck. Well, hopefully by now you will begin to see that as you walk humbly with your God, how much easier it becomes to act justly and to show mercy. As I finish and as we come around the Lord's table, these characteristics of justice, of mercy, of humility... They're not things you can simply go out and get. They're not simply things that you can say, right, I'm going to have them now. They're cultivated over time. And the key issue we come back to is what motivation is there for us to cultivate these characteristics? Or is it like a, a vegetable plot? It's a nice idea, it'd be great to grow our own vegetables, but 
actually it's easier just to nip down Waitrose, isn't it? The motivation to grow in these characteristics comes from the knowledge of God's grace in our lives, from the reminder that by the blood of Jesus we have been cleansed from our sins. And that is such good news that we surely would want to become more like our Saviour when that sinks home. Let me finish with the words from 2 Peter, words that talk about similar qualities that I mentioned there of godliness, of kindness and love. He writes this, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins.